Amen. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. Great job today, buddy. Great job with all of your team leading so well. And thank you for being here today. Thank you for your prayers. We figured out what was wrong with me and it's a long list, so I'm not going to repeat it. No, I'm doing fine. I got some antibiotics. I'm feeling much, much better. Did not have a kidney stone. It was a gastro thing that they were able to knock out with some IV antibiotics and now some other stuff. So I am good. I am not catchy or contagious. We still don't need to touch necessarily, but I'm not catchy. So uh, we would love to meet you though. If you want to come back and say hello today, we met some wonderful Uh, new couples that have been coming to our church. Last week, we had 41 signed covenants to become new members. In addition to that, 14 said they wanted to follow Jesus and be baptized. Isn't that a good day? 55 people to come. I think that's a good day. 55 people in a day. Uh, That is tremendous. Let's go to Hebrews. We're in this series as an anchor for the soul. And I want us to be praying, of course, for our Honduras team, 15 of them working hard down in Honduras right now. I know today is a special day. Many of you are going to gather. You got your wings ready, your chips, all of your your bad stuff, right? Your resolutions need to be set aside for a day. Um, Of course, you know I'm talking about the Taylor Swift Bowl. And so we're going to have, it's going to be a big day. We're glad. Do we have Swifties here? I bet we do. Y'all probably got really excited when she announced another album. Is Is that true? Did some of you lose your mind? Man, it's so weird. If we could get that kind of buzz around Jesus, it would be so cool. I would remind you though, Jesus doesn't need a private plane. He's everywhere all the time. Okay, so Hebrews, an anchor. I know I'm gonna get ugly emails. How dare you talk about Taylor Swift? Oh my word. Uh, Let's just say I'm not necessarily a Swifty. Okay, so Hebrews, an anchor for the soul. I love this verse. It's an important verse. It sets the stage for this entire chapter, especially what we're gonna talk about today. Let's read it again together. We'll throw a lot of blanks in it. We're working to memorize it. It says this, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Think about what Jesus has faced. Think about what our Lord has endured because the chance of us being weary and discouraged is high. We're gonna talk about that quite a bit today, but think about what he's been through. Let's throw some blanks in it and try again. You ready? For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Very good, you're getting that. So several weeks ago when we started this chapter, I gave you a message called, encouragement to endure. Encouragement to endure. We look at those witnesses that have gone before us. They're not in some grand stadium cheering us on right now, but they finished their race. And so we look to their witness and we lay aside all of the stuff, the weight and the sin that keeps us from running our best race. We look to Jesus and his finished work. We consider what he faced in his own race on this earth. And then last week we shifted and it was don't despise discipline. Don't despise discipline. In fact, when we have the Lord's discipline, we need to learn and grow from it. Remember his discipline demonstrates we are truly his children. And the Lord's discipline is always appropriate. Ours may not always be, right? earthly parents. It may not always be appropriate, but his is appropriate and his is beneficial for his glory and our good. Today, the theme is run 
the right way. He's going to continue in the language with this athletic metaphor of the race of life. But listen to this statement. It is very important that you hear this statement. When it comes to life and particularly the Christian life. Now listen, the end does not justify the means. And what I mean by that is very simple. Sometimes we think if we'll do this thing or take this shortcut, yeah, it may not be exactly what the Bible teaches, but it will give us the results we want. In church, we are guilty of this. Church sometimes has used marketing strategies more than the word of God and secular leadership principles more than pastoral guidance from the word to do what they do. And the church should repent of such things. If we are more market-driven than Bible-driven, then we are not a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must do things appropriately. Think about it like this. You're a cross-country runner. You have your last big race. It's for the state title. You know the course well. But sadly, you know you're not the fastest in the bunch. But if you could bring home the gold, you would win not only great acclaim for yourself, you'd get a full ride scholarship. Your parents need that. You would bring much attention to your coach. He needs that. You would elevate your school's track program and cross country work and they need that. And you think, you know, I know that course and I know there's that one little section. Yeah, it's off course, but it, it gets me there just a little faster. There's a shortcut. And I know if I get out ahead, it won't guarantee me the gold, but it'll put me in contention. Otherwise, I may not be able to win this thing. Question, I know you're all about to get real holy. Do you take the shortcut? Of course you don't. Of course you're sitting here saying, no, pastor, I would never. You want to ask that same question to Lance Armstrong? Did he work hard? Did he train? Was he an elite athlete? Sure he was. Did he still have seven titles stripped? Yes, he did. Because he put some things in his body that weren't supposed to be there and it gave him just a slight edge. Now, if that's the reason he won, we can't really say. But the world will never know because he no longer holds those titles for the Tour de France. And the reality is, it's when we are most discouraged, most frustrated, most weak and weary that the enemy will come and tempt us to compromise. He won't do it on the first mile, but he might do it on the 12th. And that's exactly what he did to Jesus. When Jesus had been led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. There's a lot to be said about the numerology there, but he was weak. He was weary. He is still God in flesh. He was hungry. And the enemy came after him. And some of you, when you are weak and you are weary, I am here to tell you the enemy will come at you you, when your marriage is not that great, when you've been fighting more than making up, when the bills are coming in faster than the checks and there's financial pressure, when relationship between you and your children is strained, when you have problems at work, when the weight of the world is coming down on your shoulders, that is when the enemy will whisper in your ear, take the shortcut. And I beg you, don't listen to him. Don't take the shortcut. 
run the race with integrity that God has laid out for you. Let's see what he says to us. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. The first word of our text in verse 12 is therefore. It connects to what we talked about last week. Maybe you're in the midst of discipline. Maybe you don't even know, is it discipline? Maybe you haven't really figured it out, but maybe some of you are thinking, yep, I'm in a season where the Lord of the, the hand of the Lord is heavy on me. But he says, in that moment, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble or the wobbly knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. In other words, don't make it worse, man. Don't swerve and make it worse. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane or godless person like Esau. Y'all remember Esau. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And there was a battle from the womb. There was a battle between those brothers. But he said, look, don't be like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he's rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Heavenly Father, what an important section of this chapter that we get to focus on now. And after we've learned to take the discipline you give us as a loving father, help us to know that in our race as we run, when our hands are hanging low, when our knees are sort of wobbling and weak, Lord, that is the moment when we will be tempted to take the shortcut. That is the moment when we will think the grass is greener on the other side, and yet we are unaware of the septic lines that lay just below the surface. Help us to remember to run the race in a way to win, but to run with integrity and never to compromise on the journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Let me give you some truths here that I see emerging straight out of this text. Number one, there is an imperative from our writer, therefore strengthen. He's saying, do this. So I'm going to give you the point in an imperative. Stay strong and stay straight to ensure endurance and focus on your journey with the Lord. Let me unpack that phrase. Stay strong and straight to ensure endurance and focus on your journey with the Lord. Let's reread 12, 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down in feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet that the lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. So we get the race metaphor language coming back from verse one, chapter 12, and it's taken from Isaiah 35, three to describe a disciplined individual's condition, like a weary runner whose arms begin to drop, whose knees begin to wobble. When we're experiencing life's trials, we must not allow that to get off track or to quit. We must endure. We must look for that second win. Anybody ever worked so hard? Maybe you were athletic. Maybe you were in a race. Anybody ever worked so hard and you felt like, I cannot put one foot in front of the other? Maybe you're like me, you like to work outside. I know we did a big rejuvenation pruning this year in the back, and I had held a chainsaw for hours and hours and hours and hours, and then I held another chainsaw on a pole for hours and hours and hours, and I was dead, but I am determined I'm going to finish. And so as we're in the back working, you just sit there and you feel like, I cannot go on. 
These legs are not gonna let me do it. They don't feel like they did 20 years ago when I could work like a mule for days on end. Things are starting to hurt. I think my check engine lights come on. I'm dying here. And then you say, Lord, I need to get this done. Let me press through. And then all of a sudden you surge up and you finish it. And then finally, when it is all done and you're in the shower, you're chilling, doesn't that feel great? Doesn't it feel awesome to catch a second wind and to keep going? But doesn't it feel miserable when you don't get it done and it's still hanging over your head? It may not be pruning, it may be writing that paper. Some of y'all got to write tonight. It's just the way it is. You know what? Sometimes we feel weak and worn out. It's like the poem I read last week. I want to let go, but I won't let go. You've got to determine right now if you're going to keep running and if you're going to run the right way. So our first exhortation here is be strong. Go straight, stay strong, stay straight. And so this, this reference to drooping hands and weak knees is very common in Jewish literature. It's in the Bible and it's an extra biblical material. And it basically says, don't be discouraged and don't fall to despair. Press on toward the goal in front of you, but do it the right way way. You need a fresh dose of courage, a fresh wind, a fresh fire. I mean, these verses radiate encouragement. And when he says, make straight paths, it's a wonderful word there. I'm going to show it to you on your screen. It's the Greek word orthos. Obviously, I've anglicized the letters. I didn't put it up in the Greek. So you don't need to write me. I know that's English. That's not Greek. I understand. But orthos, where we would get like, for instance, if you had the word feet in Greek, podia. P-O-D-I-A, podia, put it together, orthopedic, to make the feet straight. Or dantia, you know dantia, it's where we would get the word in Greek, teeth, right? So it's kind of like my big fat Greek wedding. You catch me? It's from the Greek, dantia, orthodontist. So orthodontist means what? Straight teeth. In this, he's saying orthos on your path, on the track that's laid in front of you. Because listen, we all know the shortest distance between two points is a what? Straight line. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is don't get sidetracked. Don't swerve. God has laid a track out for you and the enemy will try to get you off that track every way he can. In fact, once you're saved, your track leads you to heaven. You can be assured of that. If you truly know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your track leads straight to the throne room of God. You will see the Lord one day. So the enemy has lost your destination. Now he's after your testimony. He wants to throw you off. He wants to bog you down in the mud. He wants other people to point and say, you see those Christians, they're all alike. Look at them. They do the same things we do. The reality is we have a responsibility not only to stay on our track, but to look out for those beside of us in the path. And so we must be disciplined. In fact, uh, this, this past few weeks, I gave the staff an exercise. We do different staff exercises. And I said, over the course of the past few weeks, I want you to read your Bible. I want you to do your daily quiet time. And I want you to come back to the table with um, what has God taught you? Something fresh, something new you saw, maybe a text you've read a hundred times. Give me something new. Well, coming into last weekend, I hadn't even chosen mine. And we were having all staff this past Tuesday. So I thought, Lord, I really need something here. Well, I was quite sick, the sickest I've been in a very, very long time. And so from Friday, Saturday, I thought I better put some people on standby in case I can't preach. I'm not laid out in 25 years, but so I texted a couple of people and immediately I got responses from this team. 
I got you, pastor. Here's my outline. I'm ready to preach. I got this. I'll do this. We got life at grace. Everything was covered literally within minutes. You know how encouraging that is? You know how special it is to have men and women around you that will say, don't sweat it. We got you. Don't worry about this. So I'm reading for that day, that day, Exodus 17. And it's the battle of Israel and Moses has got his arms up. And when his arms are up, they're winning the war. But when his arms get weary, he begins to drop and they lose. So they prop them up with stones and then Aaron and her come alongside of him and help hold his arms up. I'm not trying to say I'm Moses by any stretch. What I am saying is that that illustration and many others in the Bible say we are not to fight alone. We are to work together and we've got to trust that God puts people around us and in our lives to hold our hands up when we are so weak, we cannot go on. We are called not to live individualized, privatized Christian lives. We are called to do it together. The next chapter, Exodus 18, the next day, Jethro gives advice to his son-in-law Moses and says, Moses is walking him around going, look, pops, pops-in-law, look how many people I'm leading. Look at all of this I do. I sit here from morning till night and I judge their cases one after the other. And I'm sure he was waiting for Jethro to say, wow, you're really important. Look at you. Could you sign my Bible? I'm sure he was looking at Moses, but Moses didn't get that reply. You know what his father-in-law told him? Moses, the thing you're doing is not good. Too much weight, too much pressure. Appoint people over thousands, hundreds, fifties. You can still take hard cases. However, you are doing this alone. That's not God's design. It's one of the best leadership principles we find there. The Bible's full of leadership principles. We need the word. We don't necessarily need Maxwell. Anyway, so what we come back to discover is this. God says you do this thing in community. And when you do it, you stay strong and you stay straight to ensure endurance and to ensure focus on your journey with the Lord. Despondency is the devil's tool, not only to hinder us, but to depress us and depress those around us. Pastor, theologian, author Ray Brown said this. Now, there are a lot of things that Ray Brown writes I don't necessarily agree with. But he said a couple of things that I really agreed with in light of this text. And he said this, an elderly friend of mine had these words written in the front of her Bible. She wrote, I absolutely refuse to gratify the devil by being downhearted. That's a pretty good word. I'm just not going to give him the pleasure of being a Debbie Downer. I am not going to feed the flame of the devil and all of his cohorts. Stay strong and straight. Not only that, number two, pursue peace and purity while carefully avoiding a root of bitterness. Okay? Let's see that in 1415. Pursue peace and purity while carefully avoiding a root of bitterness. It says this, pursue peace with all people. And holiness or purity or separation without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness. So pay attention, look carefully, behold, lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Notice what the writer says, not just you. If you let a root of bitterness grow up in your life, many around you become defiled. And so first, make effort to live at peace with all people. Make effort to live at peace with all people. Is that easy in this world in which we live? No, not really. No, try driving around Orlando, Florida. We were there. 
about a week and a half ago, it's hard to live at peace with people when they clearly never had driver's ed and it may be their first time ever behind the wheel. It's clearly to live at peace. It's clearly difficult to live at peace when everybody's, you know, looking at the phone and doing the lipstick and that's just the guys. I mean, look, man, they're crazy down there. And then seek holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm gonna quote Raymond Brown again. He's right on this. Listen, he says, a sense of rich corporate unity in the local congregation. Because he's writing to a local body, Jews who've become Christians, some of which are trying to slide away back into their old rites and rituals. He's writing to a body of believers. And Brown says, a rich sense of corporate unity in a local congregation will do more to create the right atmosphere. I got a hair on me. Wait a minute. I can't preach with that. Do you want this? Here. Definitely not mine. Mine don't grow that long. Look, he says, the, uh, the, the unity amongst the congregation will create the right atmosphere for healing more than almost anything else. But now look, I love what he said. They must not only keep the peace, they must actively pursue it. Why actively pursue peace? Well, because go back to Hebrews 2. If you remember Hebrews 2, it says we're like a boat. And unless we stay moored, unless we have an anchor, we will drift. We will always drift. And we won't drift toward peace. We won't drift toward righteousness and goodness. We will drift away from God. Your natural inclination, my natural inclination is not to move toward the Lord. We have an enemy that hates us. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants us to take us away from God. But we've become so privatized and individualized in our faith. We must understand that being faithful and vigilant applies not only to us, but also to pay attention to those around us. Like Paul said to the Galatian believers in Galatians 6.2, we must bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If your hands are heavy, your knees are weak today. Don't forget Christianity is not to be lived in isolation. Don't suffer in silence and solitude. You were made for community. You say, Pastor, how can you know that I was made for community? Because the Trinity shows me our triune God, and we are made in his image, had community and relationship before he ever made us. And he said, I want you to be like me. I want you to emulate me. I'm gonna create you in my likeness. We are made for community. We are called to love God, but that is not alone. We are called to love others. We are called to look out for one another. And this should help us prevent the root of bitterness. We've gotta pay attention to that. It's from Deuteronomy 29, 18. It warns against a practice or attitude that would contaminate the mind or conscience and then in so doing contaminate others. Truth is, though, some folks act poisonous. They're like a weed, and their root is affecting the soil around them. And we've probably all met them. And if you're sitting out there this morning and say, I don't know what that preacher's talking about. I've never met anybody like that. I don't know anybody that's just bitter and mean all the time. Congratulations, I think you're it. Because the reality is we probably all know people that when we see them coming because of the pervasive negativity and despondency, we just want to run and hide. Now, don't look at them right now, but am I right about that? 
You know there are people that you, you just don't want. It is Debbie Downer. It's the old SNL skit for those of you that are cultured like me. You might remember. You, you, you just look at these people and you go, man, I, I don't want any part of that. Now, I don't mean being weird the other way. I know some people that are so happy, slappy, nothing's ever wrong. They make me sick too. I'm just going to tell you the truth. We, we don't need fake and false and phony mess. We need to be real with one another, but it's like the black oak scenario. We have two big, beautiful black oak trees. One is quite large, the other sort of midland size, but I wanted to, there was kind of a bare area on the top. I wanted to plant some plants around the one and they just didn't do any good. Everything else we planted was fine. So I planted some more stuff and it still didn't do any good. And then I began to read up on black walnuts that their roots produce a toxic substance that prevents certain plants and flowers from growing anywhere near them. I had no idea. I just thought they dropped those big tennis balls that rolled down into the woods behind that. I didn't know that they produced something that actually killed things around them. There are some people like that. The moral's simple, don't be a black walnut, okay? Don't be like that. Don't be one of those people that people don't want to be around. In fact, remember, good root, good fruit. Bad root, bad fruit. No fruit, no root. I can't see your root. Only God can. Not even your spouse, guys. Look, remember this. Not even the person closest to you. You and the good Lord know the root in your heart today. But I can see your fruit. And the Bible tells us that we are to judge a tree by its fruit. But if that fruit is bad, there's something wrong with that root. If that fruit is non-existent, that root may be non-existent. But when we produce good fruit, some 30, 60, and 100 fold, it means some good things are going on below the soil. And I want to be that guy. I want you to be that gal. I want you to have people around you that said, you know what? I'm struggling with this. My hands are weak. My, My knees are wobbly. I need to go talk to, put your name in the blank. You be that person. You be the individual they can go and see. It's hard when we don't feel good, man. It, I, I hate being sick. I mean, I literally, some of you said, Pastor, you really hadn't been checked since you were 18? You hadn't been to a normal doctor? No, I hadn't. To the glory of God. No, I hadn't done that. I'm glad I went. I'm glad I got checked. But here's the point. I'm glad that there are people in my life that love me and care and say, I'm praying for you and we're here for you and whatever you need and we'll take care of that. Believers are to pursue holiness and shun evil because evil is like a contagious disease. A friend of mine keeps calling me, telling me he's a pastor. He's telling me in another state about how many cases of infidelity they're dealing with. Just week after week after week, it seems somebody's sleeping with somebody else and it's going on and on and on. And one day I was laughing and joking with him and I said, bud, you need to build a, they need to build a Dollywood up there. Y'all need to do something else. Nobody got anything to do in your town but sleep around. And then I got to thinking later, you know, those people don't really need Dolly. Those people need Jesus. I mean, there's a problem going on. And I'm going to hit that again in just a moment. But my point is that we're called not only to cut out the bitter bitter root in ourselves, we're we're to pursue purity. And if there's something that's beginning to spring through the soil that's not quite right, I need you to hear from one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. I need you to hear his counsel on this and see, see what you think. I don't like it one bit. I tell you, this is just the beginning. Going around breaking street lamps. City property, mind you. Next thing you know, they'll be on motorcycles wearing them leather jackets and zooming around. They'll take over the whole town, a reign of terror. 
Barney, these are just boys you're talking about. They're only about eight years old. Yeah, well, today's eight-year-olds are tomorrow's teenagers. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. First sign of youngsters going wrong, you got to nip it in the bud. I'm going to have a talk with them. Now, what more you want me to do? Well, just don't mollycoddle. I won't. Nip it. You go read any book you want on the subject of child discipline, and you'll find that every one of them is in favor of bud nipping. Take care of it. Only one way to take care of it. Nip it. In the bud. Now. Every book you'll read about proper parenting is in favor of bud nipping. Did y'all know that? Every book. The reality is Barney is exactly right. Now, I don't know that he, they're all going to grow up to be motorcycle uh, leather wearing, motorcycle riding. You know, if, you, if that's you, cool, come join Grace Riders. We'd love to have you in our ministry. Uh, listen, he makes this statement in there. He said, well, just don't mollycoddle. I didn't even know what that was. I had to look that word up. Mollycoddle, to overly baby or pamper or coddle. And you say, oh, pastor, it's 2024. Surely we don't have a culture where any parent would mollycoddle their child. <laughs> you know what we need more of? Bud nipping. That's what we need. We need bud nipping. We need people to understand if I allow this to go unchecked, I don't care if that kid is two years old in the middle of the cereal aisle of the grocery store throwing their tantrum. That is not going to be allowed if your last name is Lewis because we're bud nippers. You understand? And the reason we have some of the mess we have in churches today is because we've got a lot of two-year-olds. Oh, they may actually be part of the family of God, but they are still drinking milk. And I want to be a congregation of people that are meatitarians. I want to eat some meat. I want to grow up. And that's okay if you're vegan or vegetarian and you want to munch on grass, come on, but munch on grass to the glory of God with us. But let's be mature and let's grow up in our faith. Let's nip these things in the bud in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And it's so easy to look away and say, it's none of my business. That's not my deal. But if we're part of the same family, it is your deal. It is your business. And there's no room here for some casual dismissal of sin, nor room for a superiority complex, guys. Remember Galatians 6.1, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. But then it says, considering yourself also, lest you fall. You must take your own life into consideration and lest you be tempted to fall away. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I above all others could recognize I'm chief of sinners and I have the propensity to fall just as fast and as hard as anyone. But if I'll keep my eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, if I'll keep my eyes and my hands on the wife of my youth, if I'll keep my heart into the word so that the word is in my heart, if I will lead from a position of integrity and not expediency, folks, I'm telling you, God will honor that in the long run. But this give it to me now, instant gratification, I gotta have it, I gotta have it, I gotta have it. It's killing our culture and it's killing Christians. We gotta get over it. We've got to be sure that we're walking a path of purity and peace and avoiding a root of bitterness. Last, tr last truth I want you to see. Don't give up so much to get back so little. 
I know you've probably heard variations of that before, and I'm not even talking about getting back anything but pain and shame. But don't give up so much to get back so little. Look at 1617, lest there be any fornicator or profane godless pagan person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, and afterward, you know this, he wanted to inherit his blessing, but he was rejected. And he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. I'm going to unpack that for us, but look. Esau is an example of a man who was immoral and lived in a godless manner for parts of his life. At times he was more right with the father, but he was godless much of his life. And he showed contempt for his religious heritage by selling his rights. Uh, Genesis 25, 33, 34, you remember he comes in. He has privileges, the eldest son. He's gonna get a double portion of inheritance. And yet he's weak, he's worn out, he's tired. He feels like he's gonna die. He's being very melodramatic. And he sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. Basically says, look, I'll give you anything for that red soup right there. Just give it to me. Well, give me your birthright. Whatever. I don't even care. I'm going to die. What good is it? See, we make bad decisions when we feel we're at the end of our rope. And he sells it away to his conniving brother, Jacob. And we see, of course, that it doesn't end there. Because the mother and the father were divided in their parenting and she loved Jacob more and, and of course Isaac loved Esau more, we see that, that he pulled one over on his eyes when his eyes were literally failing. And so with his mother's help, Jacob goes in and he not only took the birthright at first, he took the blessing. And the father ended up blessing Jacob because you remember he cooked the stew and he, or cooked the meal and he put the hair on the back of his hands. And I won't get into all of that. We'll get there when we get back to Genesis. But the point is that he failed to appropriate God's grace and Esau wasted God's opportunity. And it started with this idea of being profane. Now, it calls him a fornicator in the New King James translation. We have no Old Testament reference to, to Esau being a fornicator in the traditional sense of having sex outside of marriage. However, Jewish theologians, when I was studying what these guys wrote about it, they saw Esau as a fornicator because he married pagan wives. He was trying to get back at his father and his mother, and so he went outside of the religious family, and he married these foreign women, at least the first round of women he had. And so they said, well, he was like fornicating, because the New Testament tells us, don't be unequally yoked, believer and unbeliever, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. And so maybe that's why they use fornication. I'm not going to try to over-speculate. What I am going to say is this. Esau is an example of giving away so much and getting in return so little. And you say, pastor, that's so foolish. I would never do anything like that. Oh, but many have. In my quiet time at the first of the week, if you're on the church plan, we were reading Proverbs 7. I'm always taken back by Proverbs 7. I'm amazed as a pastor in these two and a half decades of counseling men and women over and over and over and over and over and over who have given away so much for so little. And it describes the harlot there as one, her husband is away. She's trying to entice a new lover. And it describes him so vividly. It says that he is like an ox being led away to the slaughter has no idea what's coming it describes him as a bird who is going into a snare and I thought about that this past week and I thought about that in light of this text on Esau and I thought about as an outdoorsman it's so true fishermen out there you know that one of your goals is to find the right bait the right color, the right size, hard plastic, soft, live, artificial. What is it that will entice that fish the most to bite? Don't you know we have an enemy that would love to hook you? 
He knows what bait you like. There's a nine-point deer from not too far down the road, 20 minutes down the road. He's hanging on my wall. He was delicious, by the way. But that nine-point deer could not stay away from the scent of a sweetie. I sprayed the woods down with some dough stuff. It's actually urine. It stinks to high heaven, but the bucks love it. And I sprayed the woods and sprayed the woods and sprayed the woods. And a couple of seasons ago, he could not stay away. And many a man has had his head blown off for that alluring aroma. A couple of weeks ago, I'm in Texas hunting. I hear the sound of a feeder. We can't do those in Tennessee, but they're legal in Texas. And that beautiful golden pellet falls on the ground. It's corn. And in short order, a big, beautiful black buck walks out. He's now going to the taxidermist. And we think, well, yeah, but that's just the animal kingdom. Old stupid animals, don't be an ox. Don't be a bird and a snare. And it's not just the opposite sex, is it? Preparing your taxes. Do the right thing. If nobody else is watching and Uncle Sam never catches it, God in heaven is paying attention. Do the right thing. Do the right thing when no one else is around. And I love what Karen said. We were talking over some graphics, some things I wanted here in a moment. You'll see at the end. And she made this statement. She said, I told my kids this, and so I wrote it down. I don't know if it's exactly the way she said it, but please pray for my dear assistant, Karen. She's feeling uh, poorly today. She's out for sickness. We need to lift her up. But She says something like this. Don't make long-term decisions based on short-term circumstances. Wow. What a good word. Don't make long-term decisions. My fingers were, felt like they were bleeding the last few days. I, Cindy and I did some stitching of some stuff on a couch. We wanted to repair a, a couch because we liked the couch. We wanted to fix something. They hurt so bad. I'm not a sewer. <laughs> I should have found a thimble or something. But I realized, you know, pressing that really heavy gauge needle through. And, it, you know, at one point I thought, man, I could just whack that off. That's not a good idea. That's a bad idea. More pain is coming. More problems are coming. They say, what'd you do to yourself, stubby? Well, my fingers were hurting. It's not smart. And yet people do such things all the time. And I want to make sure we conclude with getting these verses in a proper place. Because if you read this wrong, look at 17. You know, afterward, Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, but rejected and found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. What is that saying? Misinterpretation has led us down a path of, well, he went to the father, but the father would reject him. And, and it's kind of like God. There comes a place where God's just going to reject. That's not what it's teaching at all. Listen to me. Esau rejected his birthright over a little soup. Later, he discovers, oh, as the firstborn, I should get a double inheritance, a double portion. And yet when Jacob had outfoxed him, he begins to cry and weep and moan, bless me too, daddy, bless me too. And the dad said, son, it's too late. You didn't want what you were given. You threw it away and threw it in my face. Now it's a little too late. And there's a lot of backstory to all of that, but the point is this. He did a great deal of boohooing, the text would say, but it's like the thief who does a great deal of boohooing once he's in cuffs. It's like the person stopped with the DUI. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You're not sorry you're a thief. You're not sorry you're a drunk. You're sorry you got caught. And there's a big difference in being sorry you got caught and sorry that you've broken the father's heart. And I want to remind us today that one of those is genuine repentance. Both may have tears, 
but only one is genuine. And he saw, certainly by what would happen later in his life, prove that he was not genuine. But what about you? What about me? Are we willing to give up so much for so little? Last night, I was able to take my sweetie out for a date. The kids were busy with their sweethearts. And, you know, it's Valentine's Day coming up. That's also Miss Cindy's birthday. She's a Valentine's baby, so she's going to turn 29. Don't you make a sound. She's turning 29. She's a beautiful 29-year-old. I married so young. And she... She and I were holding hands. We were watching something when we got home. We had a great conversation. We had a great meal. We came home. We're holding hands. On Saturday nights, I don't normally talk about the message, but I'm almost always processing through the messages and what I'm thinking. And I thought, God, there's so much here. Thank you. Nearly three decades with this lady, way more than half our lives, you brought us together, 29 of those years We're coming up on a husband and wife, and I've seen guys throw away so much for so little. I've seen people give away so much in their relationships. Had men that I knew and admired and had great platforms and opportunities to be influencers and affect others, and they gave up so much for so little. How you run your race matters, how you finish matters. You know why we should never put a living human being in stained glass? Because we don't know if their life is stained. And one of the things I'm learning here as I'm growing in my own faith is that I have got to stay strong with good, godly people around me. I've got to stay focused and straight lest I steer off. It's like my daddy taught me how to mow. Take that push mower and don't look down, look ahead. And keep your eye on one spot. If you keep your eye on one spot, it won't look like you were mowing and drinking at the same time. You'll go straight. And if we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we're much more apt to go straight toward him. Yeah, as a Christian, your track will lead you to heaven, but you don't want to get bogged down in the meantime. Pursue peace and purity and avoid a root of bitterness. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes life doesn't seem fair. Sometimes discipline toward us or discipline toward others just seems wrong. And yet we live in a sin-cursed world and the only way to make it better is to know this is not all there is. And folks, don't give up so much to get back so little. It's just not worth it. I want to close with this picture. Uh, It was Thursday morning before all the rain set in, and we have some of these beautiful East Tennessee sunrises. Cindy will go out on the deck or out from our bedroom window, which faces due east, and she'll take these snapshots. I want you all to look at this. You all fans need to see this. God still loves you even after last night, okay? You see that? Isn't that incredible? And you can see Melton Lake behind us. Our house sort of overlooks that. There's the road and the the track below us, but you can't see it because of the incline in the trees, but we just see the towers. We don't see the plant, but the towers. A couple of things about those towers. The big one, interestingly enough, in um, 67, I believe it was, when it went live as a generator, was the largest stack ever built up to that point, anywhere. It housed below it the largest boiler in the United States of America. My dad would be so amazed by this because my dad drummed up business as a boiler man by finding big stacks. And in his early days, he would go to these places with big stacks knowing they had a boiler. Now the little stack's been in use for the last few decades, but it kind of saddens me. 
It really saddens me that they've decommissioned that plant. I understand with fossil fuel and the argument of this, but that plant powered 400,000 plus homes for, for decades. And by the way, in this bitter cold, they're doing rolling blackouts and it's a good idea to shut down the power plant. Geniuses. Geniuses, I say. Anyway. My point is very simple. When I looked at that picture, and I had actually talked to our team about this on Tuesday, so it was timely that Cindy sent our family group text that particular picture. When I looked at that picture, you know what I thought? It took thousands of man hours, thousands to construct those stacks and all of the stuff around it, maybe tens of thousands of man hours, the big one, and then later with the new scrubbers, the little one. But sometime over the next six years, according to TVA policy, everything above ground has to be raised on these fossil plant sites where they decommission them. And so everything will come down. I hope to be there on my back deck, video in hand, video camera in hand. And it's going to be, a, I think it's going to be a sad day because you can even see those from up here on Dystone Gap. Don't stop and say, I told you to look. You'll die up there. Be careful. It's scary. But you can see those from all over the county. Look, the point is this thousands of man hours and they'll come crumbling down in seconds same thing with your life years we've invested together years she's poured into me and I into her do you think it wise to give up so much for so little how foolish would we have to be in this covenant relationship to bring it all down how foolish in our Christian walk, in the covenant of the gospel, when Jesus died for our sins, when Jesus was buried and raised the third day, when we have cried out and said, I believe and I receive and I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior and we enter this beautiful covenant like a picture of marriage, how foolish to throw it away. Not that you would lose your salvation, but bub, you can lose your testimony, your reputation, your witness in a matter of moments. It could take 50 years to build your witness and five minutes to ruin it, and that's just the truth. So would you please consider staying straight, staying strong? Would you please consider pursuing peace and purity? Pastor, you just don't get it. My life's hard. I don't have a wife like yours. Mine doesn't appreciate me. My kids don't listen. They don't respect me. All you have to do is sit around and read your Bible and you pray all day. Yeah, come follow me around for a week. See how that works for you. You don't understand my life. You don't know how bad I've got it. Well, first it sounds like, bub, you've got a root of bitterness springing up. So let's deal with that first. Well, you just don't know me, man. It's the way I'm wired. I'm just wired this way. Good news, I serve a God who can rewire you today. I serve a God who's greater than any master electrician you have ever known, and he can change you from the inside out today. Your journey can start today. First, you gotta be running with Jesus. Then you gotta be running with other people who are in this race. And listen, grace is a place that I want you to be serious about your faith. If you wanna be mollycoddled, if you wanna blow bubbles and get candy, this ain't the church for you. I'm just telling you right now. If you wanna dig deep into the word of God and learn the things of God, and we, how long do we have to do that? A lifetime. A lifetime together and we'll just scratch the surface. But if you want a serious place of faith that'll have a good time on the journey, welcome home. 
We're glad you're here. But all in all, some of y'all need to start your race of faith with Jesus today. You know there's no real root there. You've been trying and you've been frustrated and there's just nothing there. You need to come and take a pastor, a counselor by the hand. You need to nail it down. Stop trying to fool yourself and others. Get with Jesus. Some of you need to get back in your lane today. Some of you are getting off track. Some of you are dangerously close to the precipice. It could be relational. It could be financial. It could be spiritual. Your walk with God is being compromised. You need to get back in the lane. Some of you need to come as intercessors. I try to say this weekly, but some of y'all know somebody. They're dangerously close to having a collapse. Please say something. As the band comes up, I want to close with just this thought. It was a year ago, right around Valentine's Day, when a long-time, faithful, sweet, dear member of this church family saw no way out but to take her life. Her sweet husband, Mike, is down in Honduras, and he said it was a blessed distraction to be able to go work. But the Brogdons are some of the finest people I've ever known. And I've never seen a situation shock me any more than Tina. And in reading through all of those letters that she left for months with Mike and going through those one after the other after the other and seeing the things that she wrote down, my sweet sister did not see a way forward. I don't claim to know all that you're dealing with today. I don't claim to know all the pressures in your heart and in your life. But I claim to walk with a God who wants you to know that you can keep going. Until he calls you home, this is not the end of your race. You can find hope and you can find healing, but you cannot continue to suffer in solitude. You must speak up. You must seek help that you need. We have wonderful, trained, godly people here who want to help you. We want to walk with you. We want to lift up your weak arms. We want to steady your wobbly knees. We want you to know that you are loved and you don't have to do this alone. I don't know who this may be for. I don't know if you're in the room or if you're out there. But I want you to come today. I want you to pray today. I want you to lay it before the Lord. If you need to speak to someone, take them by the hand and talk. I want you to intercede today. I want you to say enough of this privatized mess. I know such and such is hurting. God, how will you use me to come alongside them like the image? Can I be one of those guys? Can I carry the edge of their mat? I'm begging you to keep running, but run the right way. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.